Well, it's a new year, still. I know some of you might be thinking, uh, dude, it's the second Sunday of the year. Thoughts about the new year were so last week. Uh, while that might be the case, Lord willing, the truths we will consider today are timeless truths. I can see how the passing of one year and entering into a new year might cause different thoughts and reactions in different people. For some of you, entering a new year might be painful because it is a reminder of just how long it is that you have been suffering under a particular trial or struggling with a besetting sin. For others, a new year might bring some fear because illness or old age is settling in for you or a loved one, and you don't know if this year might bring death. And yet others might be so caught up with the goals or ambitions of this life that uh, the year to you, you may have lost sight of just how temporary the seen things of the world are. If you fall into one of those categories or even something completely different, I believe the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, has a word for you today. Uh, before I jump into the background of 2 Corinthians, uh, this morning, a little bit last night and this morning, I, I kind of had this, this nagging thought that uh, at some point in my sermon, I had uh, thoughts to share a literary illusion and also an analogy. It's kind of, have I, have I mentioned one of those in a sermon before? So this morning, I, was, I pulled up my, uh, the, from the handful of times that I preached the past sermon notes. And sure enough, the literary reference uh, I made was from a sermon back in January 2nd, 2011. And... Um, I totally forgot that I had preached on the middle part of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So there's actually a teeny bit of overlap between that sermon four years ago and this morning. So I, I really, going into preaching this week, was just I looked at a bunch of different passages and was really trying to sense what might be a good word for us this morning and ended up landing on the end of 2 Corinthians 4 and then the first half of 2 Corinthians 5. But because that little bit of overlap, uh, hopefully some of you aren't thinking, oh, seems like he just said this four years ago. Would you please stop repeating yourself? Um, but uh, if you do the math, that means there's a good chance that I might wrap up 2 Corinthians chapter 13 on January 3rd, 2083, uh, when I'm 103 years old. Unless I decide to go back and do chapters 1, 2, and 3, at which case I'll wrap up 2 Corinthians when I'm 127. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> uh, but as we turn to look at our passage in 2 Corinthians, let's first consider a little background to the book. I, a few times that I preached on something from a particular book of the Bible, I, well, most of the times that, that I've done that, I, uh, I like to try to get a bird's eye view of what's the gist of this book of the Bible about. And so with this one, here's, here's the gist of it. Paul had visited Corinth once before, and he had established a church there. And then as time went on, he had written a series of letters to the church in Corinth. There's one letter that he references having written in 1 Corinthians. And that letter we, we don't have. We just know the little bit that Paul mentioned to it in 1 Corinthians. And we do have the, the letter that he wrote that we now call 1 Corinthians. 
And then uh, a little bit more time goes by, and Paul was planning to pass back through the area from traveling from Ephesus to pass through, stopping at a variety of churches, one of them being the church in Corinth. And as he went along, he was collecting uh, contributions to help support the Christians in the region of Judea. And as he was going, again, stopping at a few churches along the way, he sent Timothy ahead to stop by the church in Corinth. And when Timothy got there, he found that things were not going very well there in that church because there were some opponents to Paul that were causing a lot of problems in that church. And it appears that, among other things, they were raising questions about the reason why Paul was collecting an offering for the believers in Judea. And they also were seriously questioning whether or not Paul was a legitimate apostle. And one of their arguments for that is they're basically saying, look at all of the hardships and trials and difficulties Paul has run into. Surely God must not be blessing his efforts. He must not be a legitimate apostle, because if he were a legitimate apostle, God would be protecting him from more of these hardships and trials. So Paul expedited things a little bit and did visit the church there. And it was not, apparently from what we see in, in a couple passages in 2 Corinthians, it was not a very pleasant stay that he had there, that it was very painful because largely because of all the different accusations that were being hurled at Paul. And rather than stay and defend himself, he showed mercy and left without retaliating. He went back to Ephesus, and from there he sent a letter, another one that we do not have the text of, but he references that letter multiple times in, in 2 Corinthians. And that letter we don't have, he sent with Titus back to the church in Corinth. And in that letter... One of the things that he was doing was really confirming to them how much love he has, he had for the Christians there in Corinth, but also warning them to repent of the false things that they were believing. And thankfully, many of those there in the church of Corinth did repent, but there were still some who continued to reject Paul's gospel, and that's the context in which he wrote this letter to them, 2 Corinthians. So with that background in mind, especially the accusations against Paul that he had suffered so many trials and persecutions that God must not have been blessing his ministry, let's turn to our particular passage for the day, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, through chapter 5, verse 11. In this passage, Paul is considering the certain future resurrection and glorification of our bodies. As he put it in chapter 4, verse 14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. With those truths in mind, I'd like to look at four conclusions or admonitions that Paul has for us. The, these are the three so statements he makes and a thereafter. The so we do not lose heart of chapter 4, verse 16. The so we are always of good courage of chapter 5, verse 6. The so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him of chapter 5, verse 9. And the therefore we persuade others of chapter 5, verse 11. 
Each of these so statements he supports with some for, that's F-O-R, not, not the number you for or because statements. So let's consider these one at a time. First, he has the so, we do not lose heart. This can be found in chapter 4, verse 16, where he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is, pass, is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. As we go through these different statements uh, in these basically three paragraphs, we'll just kind of go through the different statements and look at what some of the thoughts are that we have. So on the so, we do not lose heart. Paul follows up with some reasons why they are not losing heart. And he begins with, though our outer self is wasting away, certainly that is true. Due to the curse, our physical bodies, and even all of the physical universe were not made to last, but to decay and die. But he continues that with, our inner self is being renewed day by day. As Christians, we can take encouragement that regardless of our age, health, possessions, situations that we're facing in life, we can always be growing in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul put it this way, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Likewise, in Ephesians 3.14-16, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So I have that general thought of, as you go through life, yes, physical things, whether it be our bodies or our possessions, will waste away, will deteriorate, will become less than what it once was. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is the opportunity that regardless of what's happening in the physical world, we can be growing in Christ and being strengthened in our inner selves. That's one of the reasons he has for why they did not lose heart. Even though they could be beaten and stoned and left for dead and all of the other physical trials that they faced, they knew that it was strengthening and building up their inner selves in Christ. Then he has another four statement. It says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. <clears throat> so here Paul is painting the picture as if there were some scales. And on one side of the scales you put every single affliction that you could ever face in life. On the other side of the scale, the glory that we will get to partake of in heaven. It says if you put those on the scales, all of the summation of any and all physical, earthly, temporary trials completely pales and is as nothing when compared to the glory 
that we will have. And with that in mind, he says, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And he kind of gives another little brief reason because that. He says, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So on that topic of not losing heart, he also is drawing great encouragement for how rich of blessings we are in store for. And also an admonishment that essentially the way not to lose heart is to keep the focus not on the temporary, but on the eternal. Not on what we see in our circumstances or in our life, but the unseen spiritual realities that are at play. So we do not lose heart. But then next, let's take a look at chapter 5, verse 6. So we are always of good courage. And if you wonder why I'm skipping verses 1 through 5 all of a sudden, it's because many of the reasons that Paul gives for always being of good courage are in some of the statements in that first paragraph, verses 1 through 5. So we are always of good courage. Why? Verse 1. For we know that if the tents, and here Paul, uh, one of the analogies that he would like to use is that of building tents, and he had that occupation for a time, and here he's using the, the picture of our physical bodies being a tent. And what is a tent? It is something that is intended, intended to be a temporary dwelling place. So this tent, our bodies, is temporary dwelling place, which is our earthly home, is destroyed we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Yes, our physical selves may waste away, may eventually die, but we have an eternal one that is waiting. And he gives another thought, verse 2, For in this tent we groan. Makes that statement twice, right here, and then also uh, in verse... Four, I think. Yep, verse 4. Here, verse 2. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. I'm going to pause on that thought for a second. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling and ask you the question, to what extent do you find it a regular thing that you look forward to being glorified and completely sanctified as something that you are longing for? I, I, there is definitely a dual aspect of that. There's the aspect of being done with the trials, the hardships, the pains in life. But I think especially for the Christian, being done with the struggle of sin once and for all and being pure, sinless, spotless in the total presence of Christ. So I ask you to look at your thoughts and to Think about how you look at the world and ask yourself, to what extent do you find that being fully and completely sanctified, being done with the struggles of sin, as well as the trials and hardships of life, is something that you long for? For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal 
may be swallowed up by life. If any of you looked at the sermon title and thought, that's kind of a weird-sounding sermon title, Swallowed Up by Life. I pulled that from verse 4 here. From, because essentially what Paul is saying is he's saying, look, he's taking a look at death, moving from this life onto the next, and viewing death not really as death, so much as death is a passageway into finally and fully abundant and full life as it was intended. A body that will not decay, a, an eternity that is not fraught with sin and with struggles. And from that standpoint, it's as if death, he uses two analogies there, death is not as if like we are leaving naked, as, as uh, elsewhere we can see, you know, naked can come into the world, naked you leave. But here, not as in leaving naked, but rather being further clothed, and that dying is really more of an aspect of being completely engulfed in the fullness of life as it was intended. And that general aspect of glory, of heaven, of eternal life being so much more than what life here on earth is, uh, it made me think of C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Uh, I'm guessing some of you may have gone to see it. I saw that I saw some ads for tickets that it was there. They were doing a play production of it uh, at the Community Center Theater yesterday and Friday, I think. And um, that work, uh, kind of an interesting title, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis had in mind something that William Blake had written called The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, where William Blake was describing some of his philosophies and essentially rejecting an aspect of polar opposites of heaven and hell and of right and wrong, etc. And C.S. Lewis wrote this kind of as a rebuttal to Blake's The, um, the Marriage of Heaven and Hell. And it's, it's definitely not something you should take literally from the standpoint of it begins with the group of people who had been in hell taking essentially a magical bus ride to the entrance of heaven. Uh, but that was a setting for C.S. Lewis to be able to discuss some different aspects of, of why some people might, why some people do reject the gospel and reject God. Because what happens is they show to the kind of the entrance of heaven, which is more just like meadows and mountains and a stream and and they show up there, and as the people are kind of taking a look along, taking a look around, different people that they knew who were in heaven had the opportunity to come and to have a conversation with them. And those conversations are people who know Christ pleading with these people to come to Christ and the people giving their different reasons why they are rejecting. With that in mind, the narrator he steps off that bus into that field, mountain area that is the entrance to heaven. He says this, At first, of course, my attention was caught by my fellow passengers who were still grouped about in the neighborhood of the omnibus, though beginning some of them to walk forward into the landscape with hesitating steps. I gasped when I saw them. Now, now that they were in the light, they were transparent, fully transparent, when they stood between me and it, 
smudgy and imperfectly opaque when they stood in the shadow of some tree. They were, in fact, ghosts, man-shaped stains on the brightness of that air. One could attend to them or ignore them at will, as you do with the dirt on a window pane. I noticed that the grass did not bend under their feet. Even the dew drops were not disturbed. Then some readjustment of the mind or some focusing of my eyes took place, and I saw the whole phenomenon the other way around. The men were as they always had been, as all the men that I had known had been, perhaps. It was the light, the grass, the trees that were different, made of some different substance, so much solider than things in our country, that men were ghosts by comparison. Moved by a sudden thought, I bent down and tried to pluck a daisy which was growing at my feet. The stalk wouldn't break. I tried to twist it, but it wouldn't twist. I tugged till the sweat stood out of my forehead and I had lost most of the skin of my hands. The little flower was hard, not like wood or even like iron, but like diamond. There was a leaf, a young, tender beech leaf, lying in the grass beside it. I tried to pick the leaf up. My heart almost cracked with the effort, and I believe I did just raise it. But I had to let it go at once. It was heavier than a sack of coal. As I stood, recovering my breath with great gasps and looking down at the daisy, I noticed that I could see the grass not only between my feet, but through them. I also was a phantom. In this passage, the the main thought that I think C.S. Lewis is communicating is that what we think of as the real world, as physical things, compared to glory, are just like basically wisps of air. That, figuratively speaking, a glorified flower is of more substance than even we as people are. Just how solid and full and rich and dense every different aspect of eternity will be. That if there's a joy that we can experience here on earth, it is minuscule and nothing compared to a joy in eternity. And that would be one of the reasons why Paul would say, so we are always of good courage. Then he goes on to say this, verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. For those who are in Christ, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, even as the glory of God filled the Old Testament temple, we can no sooner perish than God himself could die. As far as our souls go, as far as our entire being goes, God could sooner die than we will if the Holy Spirit indwells us. So we are always of good courage. Then he gives another reason, verse 7. 
For we walk by faith, not by sight. These different truths that he's mentioning, they are things that we cannot see, that we cannot hold, that we cannot feel. And so it does take faith. It does take a faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And to even take that idea of faith a little bit farther, all of these truths only apply to those who do have faith in Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit as their guarantee. We walk by faith, not by sight. One more so statement, and then a therefore. Verse 9, So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. We make it our aim to please Him. On the topic of seeking to please God, Paul wrote this to the uh, church at Ephesus in Ephesians 5, 8, second half of verse 8 through verse 10. Paul said, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So first, what is the main source that we have for discerning what is pleasing to the Lord? It's Scripture, the Word of God. So I admonish you to search the Scriptures for what pleases God. Search it thoroughly for what will please God, for what will make us more like our Heavenly Father. For that ultimately is what will please Him, is growing and becoming more like Him. And that made me think of an analogy. Uh, I know I shared it with the youth group one time, but uh, I, I think it's a great analogy for what pleasing the Lord is, for what living the Christian walk is like. It was a Saturday morning. I was driving through my neighborhood, and I see in one of the front yards that I'm passing by a dad out in the front yard mowing his lawn. And about five paces behind him, a little boy with his little plastic lawnmower following the exact same path that his dad was. And the kid looked like he was having the best time. Big old smile on his face, just pushing that plastic lawnmower along. Uh, from what I recall, he may have even been trying to like match the, the little foot imprints that his father had still left from when he was mowing the grass. It just really struck me as a good analogy for the Christian life. Because that boy was doing nothing to actually cut the grass. All of the work was being done by his father. There's nothing that he contributed to maintaining the lawn. Uh, and so it is with our ultimate pleasing being found acceptable in God's sight. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves pleasing in God's sight, to make ourselves justified, to make ourselves pure. That was done by Jesus Christ. But also I just kind of asked myself, well, why, why was that little boy out in the front yard pushing his little lawnmower? And I couldn't help but think that if anything, oftentimes... When it comes to walking the Christian life, we're more like a teenager who, when asked to go out and do some, some yard work, is like, uh, I don't want to, and that's hard, and I'd rather be doing what I'd rather be doing, but okay, because I was told to. But that little boy instead, why, why was he out there having a great time? Because 
he was getting to imitate and be more like his dad. And that was what he wanted. He wanted to do what his father did. He wanted to act like his father acted. And he wanted to be with his father. And likewise, when it comes to the Christian walk, that should be our motivation. That we are, as Paul put it there, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, that we would obey, that we would search the scriptures because we want to please our Heavenly Father. We want to be more like our Heavenly Father. So search the scriptures. But then also, even as we were admonished last week, um, in trying to be more along the lines of what would please God, let's strive to train ourselves in godliness. Uh, I encourage you to give some more thought to that this week. Follow up more on what you may have been thinking last week of, of what are some steps that you can take to be actively training yourself in godliness. But then Paul follows up with another thought on that aspect of seeking to please him. And he says this in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So Paul found encouragement in seeking to please God by this aspect of being judged. And one thing that many have taken wrong about passages like this in the past is this aspect of, so God will, in many today, uh, still have this viewpoint that when we appear, it'll be kind of balancing your good works with your bad and do your good works outweigh your bad and that determines whether or not you'll receive commendation or condemnation. And that is not the case because as far as the penalty of the law goes, all it takes is one thing on the side of sin or evil to completely tip the scales in that way to deserve that condemnation. So Paul doesn't have in mind this aspect of do good so that God will be pleased with you. He definitely had in mind all of the other things that he said along the line of those who have their faith in Jesus Christ are completely justified, are found acceptable in God's sight, but there still is this aspect of striving and looking for the Heavenly Father giving that well-done, good and faithful servant. And we should be motivated by that. The conclusion that Paul gives based on that previous thought is verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord... We persuade others. Once Paul had his eyes, had his thoughts on the aspect of appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, he couldn't help but consider that without being stirred up in a desire to share the gospel, in a desire to see others come to Christ. Uh, we see a similar thought to that in Acts 9, verse 31, where we're given the account, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord 
and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And might we even be stirred up to have a view, to have a desire that we could write an account that would be along the line of, so the church throughout all Sacramento and Granite Bay and Roseville and Citrus Heights had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I really do think that's a natural progression from these topics that, that Paul has in mind. Because if the things of this world are only temporary, and if our physical bodies are wasting away, and if there's waiting for us such an eternal weight of glory, then how much more would we desire to see that in others? Would we desire to see the gospel go forth more abundantly, to see people rescued from this mortal flesh dying, meaning that that's it? that they are facing an eternal death rather than being swallowed up in life. So I leave you with that admonishment that you would, like Paul, be able to say that you are seeking to persuade others. So finally, in the introduction I mentioned, a few different kind of categories of people who might be here this morning. There might be some of you facing hardships and trials. And so I would leave you with this passage to say, don't lose heart. Trials, hardships are temporary, are fleeting. The th what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And to keep your sights on what is unseen on what, like, like that passage from C.S. Lewis, on what is so much more weighty and substantive than anything in this life. And don't lose sight on seeking to please him. can easily get overwhelmed with whatever is happening, going on in your life, and be so trying to deal with that that you can easily lose focus on seeking to please him and losing focus on yeah, the joys we can have, not just in the future, but also the tastes of those joys, of those eternal heavenly joys that we can taste even now. Some of you, again, might find that you or someone you love is having your outer self waste away. To some degree or another, we're all in that category, though some might be feeling the... the, the difficulties of illness, the difficulties of loved ones passing away. And for you, I encourage you to take heart that for those in Christ, death is more of just getting engulfed into fullness of life. Some of you might be getting caught up in the pursuits of this world. You're, especially like here at the New Year, maybe you had a lot of different types of resolutions or just reassessing things, and there are a lot of physical, seen, temporary things that is taking up a lot of your focus. 
And I encourage you not to let that cloud your vision from the unseen. Don't let that cloud your vision from the future weight of glory. Don't let it cloud your vision from seeking to please him. Because ultimately it would be such a tragedy to let things that are decaying, to let things that are wasting away, to let things that are going to break or die keep us from so much more. Some of you might be apathetic about the gospel. Maybe it's because you're caught up with the pursuits of this world. Maybe it's because you're caught up with your trials and hardships and losing sight of the glories of the gospel. And I just encourage you to take a step back and to consider these different aspects of eternity versus what is temporary. Of the future judgment that is to come. And to use that as a motivation to seek greater prayer, greater opportunities to share the gospel. And we might see the church multiplied. But then finally, some of you here may not know Christ. And if that's the case, all of the benefits that we've mentioned here, all of the joys, all of the future glories of heaven are not for you. So I encourage you not to walk away from this word. I encourage you to consider how fleeting and temporary this life is. Um, ultimately, none of us know when the hour of death may come. And we don't know if, even as uh, they were sharing beforehand, uh, that friend of Aaron, Gaines, who was driving along and saw that motorcycle accident, just kind of passed along and saw wait a second, that kind of looks like my dad's motorcycle. Thankfully, it sounds like he's okay, but those types of things, uh, you never know. Uh, I know for me, just a little snippet of my testimony, when I was 13 years old, I just suddenly had a deep sense of my sinfulness. It wasn't like any particular sin, it was just more of, I am a sinner, and I am not right with God. And the overall effect of that was fear. Because my mind would go to the thought of, I know that if I die, I am not right with God, and I'm going to hell. And that fear, that just kind of latent, ongoing fear, lasted for close to a year. There'd be different random times. I'd be riding in the car, going to school, and thinking, hmm, I'm kind of freaked out inside, riding in a car, because I don't know if on the way to school, we're going to get in a car accident, and I'm going to die. And I know I'm not right with God. I even remember a time when I was at Great America. You know those rides that are like the big boats and they go like that and you're hanging upside down and stuff? Literally, I'm hanging upside down in that ride thinking, I'm not sure riding a ride like this is the best thing for me right now because if I fell and died, 
my soul is not right with God, and I'm going to hell. <laughs> it, it, it was kind of a downer on enjoying the ride a little bit, you know, <laughs> contemplating impending eternity. Um, but I knew that that was my state. And thankfully, thankfully, one afternoon, uh, God brought me to where I just finally gave it over to him, gave myself to him, and cried out to him in faith to save me from my sinful nature. And that verse that mentions the peace that surpasses all understanding definitely rang true of just a, a solid year's worth of ongoing fear because I knew I wasn't right with God suddenly was completely gone and was replaced with a much, much, much more overwhelming sense of peace because everything was finally right and good because I knew that now when God looked at me, he saw Christ and not my sin. So for those who don't know Christ, I encourage you to do the same today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the circumstances that you brought men through, that you brought people through, uh, so that they would have the right experiences, the right thoughts, in order to be guided and inspired to write just what we need. And so, Lord, with that in mind, we can even say we thank you for all of the trials that Paul went through, for all the hardships, for all the times that he was beat and stoned, and even in this case, even fellow Christians being stirred up to accuse him of a variety of things. We thank you, Lord, for how that enabled him to write about what it was that they found encouragement in, he and his fellow laborers, what it was that motivated them, what it was that stirred them up to have joy despite their trials, what it was that kept their focus on eternity. So we pray that you would work in our hearts, Lord, that you would give us a greater sense, uh, a greater balance in our focus of how to view pleasing you, of how to keep our sights set on eternity, of how to work toward building, uh, how to, in a sense, work toward building up, working out our own salvation, but also in a sense of how just to rest in you for you to build up our inner selves, even though our outer selves are wasting away. Lord, may you motivate, may you convict, may you encourage, may you save as needed through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the name of Christ and that he would be exalted and glorified in all of this. Amen.